Welcome to the Heal Podcast, where we believe God heals people in the way that brings Him the most glory and brings us closest to Him. Whether you've received healing, you're in the fight of your life, or you gave up on God a long time ago, you are welcome here. As you come to the table, listen with an open mind, knowing everyone's journey is unique, but pain is our common language. Welcome to the Heal Podcast. My name is Tara Bradham Denai. I am your host, and I hope that you are enjoying season two as much as I am. It's been so fun to listen back to these episodes that we recorded a few months ago. So today we have another guest who I believe will not disappoint you. Her name is Marjorie Thompson, and her book came out a few months ago in 2022, and it is called Courage for Caregivers. So this is a book that is super practical. I really love this resource and highly recommend it. You'll hear us talk about some appendices in the back for small groups and for retreats. And this book is written because Marjorie's husband was friends with Henry Nouwen. So if you don't know who Henry Nouwen is, he was a, I would say, prolific author. And he is the author of The Wounded Healer, which is a book a lot of people quote without realizing where it's from. And I have read and highly recommend. So Marjorie takes some of the concepts that Henry Nowen expounded upon, and she talks about them further in this topic of caregiving in her book. So what does that look like for us? Well, maybe you are a caregiver. Maybe you're receiving help. Maybe you don't fall into either of those categories. But as Marjorie says, most of us at some point will be involved in caregiving, I entered into it recently, becoming a mom, so now I'm the caregiver for my daughter. And even if not, I believe that the Holy Spirit works in every single conversation, so I believe he has something here for you today. And if you're still not convinced, I wanted to read this quote for you from her book. What is care? The word finds its origin in the word kara, which means to lament, to mourn, to participate in suffering, to share in pain. To care is to cry out with those who are ill, confused, lonely, isolated, and forgotten, and to recognize their pains in our own heart. To care is to enter into the world of those who are broken and powerless and to establish there a fellowship of the weak. To care is to be present to those who suffer and to stay present even when nothing can be done to change their situation. That is why I'm having Marjorie on the podcast here today, because I care about you. I want to share in your pain and sufferings, and I know Jesus cares about you, and I believe you care about others. So it is my pleasure to introduce you to author Marjorie Thompson. Marjorie, it's been lovely talking to you a little bit before we hit record, but I am excited to delve into this topic and what you have done in this arena is incredible. I know it's just part of what you've done with your life, but I'm very excited to have you on and grateful for your time. So welcome to the Heal Podcast. Well, thank you so much, Tara. It's just a a delight to be with you. And I'm, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to share a little bit about this topic, which has been very important in my own life. I'm so touched by your ministry the people that you reach out to. And what a joy for me to have a chance to speak a little bit to your audience. And I hope this will be helpful. 
Yeah, I am sure it will be. I know that you have quite the backgrounds, which people might have heard if I put that in the introduction before they hear this. But would you tell people a little bit? I mean, I, I interview people who are teenagers to in their 80s from very professional authors to my neighbor that I meet. So they have no idea who you are, where you're coming from, probably. So tell us a little bit what you would want people to know. It can be professionally or it can just be something weird and unique, too. That would be fun. It's up to you. <laughs> okay, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, the, the, the sort of formal stuff is I'm, I'm an ordained Presbyterian minister, but I think what is more interesting even about that piece is that I really felt a call to a specialized ministry. I've done a little bit of serving in a local congregation. I did that back early in my in my ministry back in the early 80s. And this is where my connection with Henry really has been so significant in my own journey that I felt very deeply called to a ministry of spiritual formation. Yeah. At a time when that language just wasn't used at all in the Presbyterian church or in most churches that I was aware of. And that has been really significant in my own continued spiritual life and practice and the ministry I've done with other folks. And in my caregiving, it's all you know tied in uh, together. But if you want to go back, I I think most people get interested in some of my early history because it is a little bit unusual. Parents were in mission work in Thailand for 15 years, back from right after the end of World War II to 1946 to 1961. And so my oldest brother and I were both born in northern Thailand, Chiang Mai. Yeah, my middle brother was born on furlough back in the States. But I spent the first half of my childhood in Thailand up till age eight, eight and a half. And that was really very formative for me in many, many ways. Exposed to different culture, different language, and being a foreigner, the experience of being a foreigner in a different country, knowing that I was American, but experiencing my life in a different cultural context. And then the real defining, I would guess I I call it a defining trauma in my life, was that my father died in a train wreck in Thailand when I was eight and a half. And Hmm. my mother brought the three of us kids back to her home turf, which was the Philadelphia area, within a month of his death. Hmm. So I lost, not, it took me a while to figure this one out, why I felt so displaced and so out of place in this country for years. But I had lost not only my father, central parental figure in my life, but mm-hmm. but the world that I knew, all my friends, my school, the mission community, the little church out there, Thai friends. I mean, the, my world sort of came to a crashing halt. And yeah. um, that's how it felt anyway. And so there was this huge divide between my my early years and then the years in which I adjusted to being a child in America and and what it meant to begin you know taking on my identity in this culture and and place but I will say this that uh, losing my dad so early kind of thrust me into some really big questions at an age 
when mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't know how to handle them. But big questions about life and death and God and purpose and, and all of that, I think, drove me with continuing questions and searching. So I, I did a lot of study of religion. I, I studied different religions when I was in college. I was interested to know more about the religion of the country I had you know, spent my first eight years in. Mm-hmm. Thailand is a Buddhist culture. Mm-hmm. And I saw all the trappings of Buddhist life around me, but I didn't know anything about what that meant. Yeah. And I, you know, I was curious. I sort of explored that. And then I came back to my Christian roots and really delved into them more deeply. And that eventually took me to seminary. Mm-hmm. And seminary, the last year in seminary, introduced me to Henry Nowen. Wow. <laughs> so just from there. Okay. There's so much in that. I, I can't even imagine the identity crisis when you're, you are American, but you've never really lived as an American before. And then the tragedy of losing your father. So that actually goes straight into one of the questions that I wanted to ask you because you talked about this in your book. And you, you said, you talk about the questions when we're either receiving or giving caregiving. And there's one where you said you can ask yourself, how can I choose to face pain with courage, hope, and even curiosity? And so I'm curious in that. And it sounds like that was a huge loss for you. And there might be others that you would like to talk about. But for you personally, we like to get to know our guests. You've written something incredible. But personally, how have you faced different pains in your life with hope, courage? And I like that last one too, with curiosity. You kind of touched on that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I I think that's a really important word. And it's one that I think I continue to grow into. (laughs) Because I don't always feel real curious about Mm -hmm. things that are painful, at least not at the beginning. I guess the best illustration or the, the best example in my own life of really facing into pain with courage, and I'll just take that word to start with because I think that's where it began for me, was my husband's unexpected death eight years ago, about eight years ago now, only nine months after his mother died, and she was she was about 100 years old. It was very unexpected. Nobody knew he was ill. It was a very rare form of cancer that didn't get diagnosed until about a month before he died. So it it felt untimely. I mean, he was 67. (laughs) I was 61. And we had just completed 11 years of caregiving with his mother in our home. Yes, we were looking forward to having some time on our own again as a couple, to having some breathing space in our life. We were beginning to talk about his retirement. And, you know, all all of that just disappeared. Just the whole our future together suddenly gone. And it was devastating, just utterly devastating for me. And, you know, thrust me back into a lot of very painful questions. Did you have to re-question things that you thought you had previously gotten an answer to? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It, It took me deeper you know, I think that when we have really painful losses in life, and, and those losses may be, you know, around some kind of physical capacity or mental capacity or, or emotional traumas, when we have major losses, it takes us to why questions. I mean, this is just in our human nature. We, we need to understand or we feel that we need to understand things. And certainly I do. I have a very strong felt need to understand and 
Oh, yeah. I think the why questions are some of the most natural questions we ask because they're questions about meaning. What is going on here? Why, why do these things happen the way they do? To me, the timing of John's death was just incomprehensible. So it thrust me back into why questions, even though I knew, <laughs> I know, kind of at an intellectual level, these are not answerable questions. I mean, we're not going to get satisfactory questions to why for a lot of what happens in life. I trust that when we pass beyond the parameters of this life and we're, we're in a spiritual realm where we can see so much more clearly than we can here, that much of, of what is very obscure and incomprehensible to us will become clear. Now we see through a mirror dimly, <laughs> that's the image. Yes. But it did, it, it really uh, thrust me back. But, but where I want to go with this is that what it did was take me back into the immediacy of grief. And what I had come to understand from losing my dad at an early age is that my mother did not know how to help us process our grief when we were 8, 10, and just 13 years old, my, my two brothers and I. She was trying to figure out how to process her own grief and getting certain sort of cultural messages and messages from the mission community, one of which was, be strong for your children. And so she was very good at that. She was pretty stoic. So she didn't shed a lot of tears with us. And as a result, I think we all cried into our pillows at night. You know, I remember once uh, my <clears throat> brother, Bruce, the middle one, saying he had gone down to the basement where our laundry was in, in the years we were growing up near Philadelphia, uh, a suburb of Philadelphia. And he found mother crying into the laundry. <laughs> she was, you know, if I was crying into my pillow, she was crying into the laundry at night. Yeah, I have to let it out somewhere. She could because she, she wasn't, she apparently didn't feel free to show her feelings to us and what that conveyed to us, I don't think she intended this, was that we wouldn't really show up with each other either. We, we just tried to mm. sit on our feelings and, and not show it publicly. I understood enough about the nature of grief. I have read about grief. I know the stages of grief. I've seen other people. I've worked with other people going through the grieving process. And I knew enough about it so that when John died, I knew that I had to allow myself to undergo the, the agony, the realities of the grieving process, and not put a lid on it. And I made a commitment to myself that I would allow my feelings to be what they were, wherever, whenever, and with whomever I was. It, that was a big commitment. It was a huge me. And I had to just cut out some of the commitments I had made within the first few months after his death. But about four months later, I had an event. My first event was something up in Kentucky. It was um, a college. I'd been invited to come and, and speak. And I simply told people there, I said, I am in early stages of grieving my husband's death four months ago. And I am not through my grieving process. And I never know when it's going to hit. Mm. 
mm-hmm. because that is part of you know, grief comes in waves. You don't necessarily know what's going to trigger it. Just some little comment or some some visual cue or a sound or a mm-hmm. smell or I mean you just don't know what's going to. So I said this is the first time I've tried to speak publicly. If I get overcome with emotion, because I'm speaking about spiritual matters, you know, mm-hmm. these are not matters of the heart. Um, I said, if it happens, I'm going to trust that you will just sit with me and, and pray for me and be with me until I recover. And so I invited people to kind of let me be in the process I needed to be in. And that helped me. I think it also helped them to feel more comfortable. I got through you know, my talk without any difficulty, my issues were more, came to the surface more when I was in conversations with people around the edges afterward, because what I had shared evoked their own grief and their experiences. And some of them wanted to talk about that or to offer me condolences or whatever. So those were the moments when, when it became more difficult but because I had been upfront and honest, I felt freer to let my tears flow. And, you know, we, we're so connected, humanly speaking, at the heart level, that when we share our tears, it naturally evokes other people's tears. We, someone once said, this is, this is a quote that has always stuck with me, every human being sits beside his or her own pool of tears. Hmm. We all sit beside our own pool of tears because we all have sorrows and pain, hurt, grief, losses of, of one sort or another. None of us can escape this in this life. Physical life is full of opportunities for pain and suffering. And it comes in all kinds of forms, and we all get a whole variety of them. And it is one of the ways, perhaps one of the most effective ways, that we can grow if we allow ourselves to receive it as an opportunity to grow emotionally and spiritually. So I would say, just kind of coming back to your question, I, I faced into my grief with all the courage I could muster. And it was it was agonizing. It was harrowing. It was really, really hard to just let it happen. But, you know, I, I allowed myself to really go through it and taste it to the full and be with my feelings and get acquainted with them and allow it to happen. And what what that did was slowly carry me through, or I should say better, that it allowed me to experience God's grace carrying me through. So it put me in touch again with just how steadfast and trustworthy God's presence in our lives actually is. And at times when I felt just abandoned, I mean, really, I... I felt like I understood Jesus' cry from the cross, his cry of abandonment, so deeply. And where I felt I had lost my emotional trust in God, I discovered that below that there was something deeper that I didn't know was there. 
and I came to see it as my spiritual trust in God. It was deep. Wow. I love that, how you describe that. Well, it was a really, really important insight for me to be able to make that distinction because I had lost my emotional trust. But suddenly, uh, at one point, I just realized that the spiritual trust was still there. Mm. It was like bedrock. It was way down deep. And it's a mystery. You know, I don't know how to, I don't know how to explain that. Mm-hmm. that. But it was there. And that is God's gift. Something I could never have created. It was there deep in me. And that was the turning point in my grieving hmm. process. That was where I began to experience more healing in the grieving process where I realized that the spiritual trust in God's presence and grace was, was the deepest. So it's like the courage that I think led into the hope. So where, what part did curiosity play? (laughs) I mean, does that come later? Was it throughout the whole thing? Cause it sounds like you were very curious. That's part of your nature as far as what happened with grieving your dad's passing. So I'm curious how that curiosity played out in losing your husband. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I recognized it as curiosity, but I think at the time, I do think that my commitment to myself to really go through the process and allow my feelings to be what they were in the moment, that there was an element of curiosity about that. What would that, where would that go? Where would it take me? How would that, how would it be? to let myself go through it and, and not try to hide it, not try to suppress it or, or subvert it or just distract myself. You know, lots of people in grief get real busy and just basically try to distract themselves from their feelings. So I, I probably did have at some level a curiosity about where this would go, <laughs> what it would be like to experience grief in a very different way than I had you know, with my dad's grief, not being able to process it in a helpful way as a child meant that it got extended over years and years and years. And I didn't want that. I I wanted to be able to really move through it to a place where I could regain my energy and sense of purpose and continue my ministry. So I think I I probably did have some curiosity, but I didn't recognize it as such. That's fascinating. I'm I'm curious, huh? Didn't even do that on purpose. But <laughs> how do we when we are curious about these things? Okay, I'm curious, you know, if I surrendered this to God in this area, what would happen? I'm curious about my emotions here. What does that mean? How do we not let our curiosity lead us to fear? Because I think that asking some of those questions could very often lead to fear and paralysis of, okay, well, what, what if I don't distract myself? Well, most people would be terrified of what that would mean and what that's going to bring up. You know, what if I do delve into some of these wounds that I haven't, I don't like the word dealt with, but that I haven't really addressed in my life? Well, that might bring up some painful stuff. So how do we, when we're curious, not fall into that trap of fear? Mm, yeah, that's a really, really good question, Tara. Uh, and I think that cu- curiosity does often sort of open up terrain that brings out our fears or can take us into 
inner territory that feels scary to us because we don't really know how to do that very well. Our, our culture hasn't taught us to look inward in a, in a way that is really helpful, even with a practice like self-examination, which is one of the deep classic practices of the Christian faith, to look inward. I think this is where we need to remember that when we turn inward, we're not just doing it out of our own power, out of our own capacity for self-understanding. I mean, God has given us wonderful minds and hearts and emotions and, and curiosity, <laughs> lots of gifts for going inward, for taking this inward journey. But we do not do it and, and really ought not, I think, try to do it without God's help. But the wonderful message of our faith is that God has given us the Spirit. The Spirit is in us and within others and between us and among us and is always there, always present, ready, ready to help us see what we need to see and help us see it in a way that we can work with. So I think, I don't know, there, you know, there's some really helpful, simple practices for this. One of my favorite authors is a woman named Flora Wollner. And she does a lot with guided imagery. And she'll say, visualize the risen Christ going with you inside. When you want to explore part of you, especially if it feels scary. The things that feel scary to us are usually the things deep down that we have sort of pushed down because, because we are afraid um, to really deal with them. We're not sure what to do with them. And a lot of this has to do with emotions that, uh, emotions that scare us. So maybe fear and anger um, or, or grief, you know, so some of the emotions that we tend to label as negative, we don't know where to go with. Or um, Anyway, let me finish this piece. Flora says, let the risen Christ Go into that deep place in you first. Mm -hmm. Visualize. You might visualize Jesus going down the steps into the basement. <laughs> if you want to think about if the house is sort of a metaphor for you know our personality, and the the main places where we live is sort of our waking consciousness, and the attic is sort of our upper consciousness, and the basement is the the unconscious or the subconscious. So she says, let the light, let Jesus go with all his light and, and healing and peace go into that place before you and visualize him filling that space with his presence and light. And if he calls you to come down and join him and you feel ready to do that, you can. But remember then you're in his presence and you feel that sense of protection and guidance. Of course, it's not you in this creepy thriller horror movie going down the stairs with the flashlight on your own. And I think that's what a lot of us really would, would think. Exactly. That's a big difference. Exactly. Yeah, right. Big difference. Big difference. And I think it's the same. The practice of self-examination is meant to be done in the light of God's grace. Mm. So, you know, we ask God to help us see 
in ourselves what we need to see, what we're ready to see. Because we can really only deal with what we're ready for. Mm -hmm. You know, I was ready to handle grief in a different way at age 61 than I was when I was eight years Mm -hmm. old. And I knew it. I understood that I, I had the capacity to deal with that in a different way. And I was ready to do that. There are times when we're really ready to face something deep down. Because we know if we don't, it's going to keep interfering with our lives. It's going to keep coming out sideways, you know, or, you know, leaking out. Yep. So maybe what we need is a good spiritual counselor, a spiritual guide, or maybe it would really be helpful to have a good uh, therapy guide, someone who we know is a faithful person, but who has skills in the gifts of therapy who can kind of help us do that work. I'm struck by the fact that our word psychology comes from the Greek psyche, uh, psyche, psyche, we call it psyche. But that word, the Greek word psyche, means soul. Hmm. Psychology is sort of, if you will, the logic of the soul. (laughs) And we see it purely as mental, I think. Yeah. Yeah, we have a tendency to sort of label these things in certain ways. But it really belongs to the realm of our inner life, and our inner life belongs to God. Our soul belongs to God. So bring bring your prayer into the picture and trust that God will, will help us see the things we're ready to see and need to see in order to take the next steps in our life that will be, that will be healing and life-giving. Yeah, absolutely. I love that picture. I'm going to try to do that the next time. I feel like I need to go down into the basement or ask God if I do need to take a trip down to the basement, right? And just that's so comforting versus I think I try to do it on my own and I hate scary movies and I don't like going down there by myself and you hear the music playing and you're like, I know something really bad is about to happen. (laughs) That music is always the clue, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. So I'm I'm going to use that when I, in my prayer time and I think other people will really enjoy that as well. So thank you for going into to your story a little bit. It seems like we're not talking about your book, but I think it's all totally related because whether you are someone who is in need of care or someone who is a caregiver, these are the spiritual practices that you want to be going through in these hard trying times of either receiving or, or pouring out. So using that as a segue, I do want to talk about this wonderful work that you've done. When was it first published? Uh, I think it came out in 2017. But it's good enough that IVP University Press is redoing it and releasing it again, which it'll be, we're recording this early because of my maternity leave, but it will be more than out by the time that people hear this, the new version of it. So um, in this book, you use your personal experiences, you talk about that, but you also take a lot from Henry Nouwen's work, which I was super excited to talk to you about because I'm, you know, not 30 yet. And he is someone who's prolific, but he's his roots and legacy are still reaching deep and going into even other generations. And I think they should. So my husband's best friend actually loves Henry now and has read a lot. He really loves Life of the Beloved. And then I just read The Wounded Healer. That was my first one I read by him. So it's kind of fresh on my mind, even though I know he has had such a legacy. So you knew him personally. Will you tell us how you knew him and I guess then take us through 
how that brought you to this work. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a wonderful story. Uh, really, Henry was so important in my early ministry and the development of my ministry. He actually came, my, my first acquaintance with Henry, which I know he doesn't remember. He would not have remembered at all. But he came my third year of seminary just to lead a quiet day. It was probably a Saturday, just a, like a little one-day retreat. And, you know, here I was in my final year of the MDiv program, Master of Divinity. And I felt in Henry's presence a quality of spiritual depth that was rare and that I experienced in not just what he said, but who he was, just the the quality of his presence and manner with us, something that I had been missing in all my seminary, you know, training and preparation. I felt as if I had stepped into the presence of a man who was steeped in prayer, just steeped in prayer. It exuded from him. He brought a spirit of quietude. I, I don't, it's hard to describe, but there was just a sense of God's presence with him in that room that was centering and grounding and allowed me to open up interiorly. Henry had that capacity. And it it wasn't because he didn't have his own struggles. Uh, he was an extroverted person and got a lot of energy from being with other people. And he could be very dynamic and, you know, lively and funny. He was, you know, his humor was just amazing. But he also had this capacity to just carry this deep inner quiet and leading a quiet day. That's That was what he brought. So I had been exposed to something in him that was deeply attractive to me in terms of where I felt I needed help in, in growing in my own spiritual life. So the, the way it worked was <laughs> I, I received a fellowship when I graduated from seminary and I had to use it within three years. So two years out of seminary, I ended up as a research fellow at Yale Divinity School where Henry was teaching. Mm. He was in, or I think, I think he only taught one more year after that and he was there 10 years. So he was in his ninth year of teaching there. And as a research fellow, I really went to Yale in order to sit at Henry's feet <laughs> and learn as much as I could from him about the spiritual life, about the life of prayer. Um, I audited courses that he taught that year, but I had my own independent research project that I was doing mm -hmm. um, in prayer. And, and my that was <laughs> to explore the prayer traditions of the great three branches of Christianity, which were Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, mm -hmm. and Protestant. But that was kind of the large scale thing I was doing. It's Henry Nouwen, for people who don't know who he is, was Catholic, right? Yes, Catholic priest, Dutch, like a Dutch Catholic priest. And then you're now a Presbyterian minister. So that, that is interesting, right? Yeah. 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 So, um, so this year that I spent at Yale as a research fellow was absolutely foundational to my entire ministry. 
for one thing, <laughs> and this is not insignificant, the man who was Henry's teaching and research and editorial assistant in that year was the man who became my husband. Oh, wow. Gap Gap. I didn't know that. Yeah. So I met my husband essentially through going oh, to that's Yale awesome. to work with wow. Henry. <laughs> Yeah, what a story. So really, you know, Henry had everything yeah. <laughs> with our coming together. And one of the beautiful things that Henry helped both John and me to see was that our marriage was a vocation, mm. a calling. That word vocation, vocare, again from Latin, means call. Mm. That a married life is a life of, of vows made before God and community, just in the same way that a priest would make vows of celibacy or, you know, a monk would make vows to the community yeah. according to the, the particular commitments of, of that order. So it was really, really helpful for John and me to understand that we were called into married life, which is not a very common understanding for most. It wasn't just a matter of falling in love and, you know, finding... We had a lot of things in common, although we did, right. but that we had a sense of common calling in, in God's purpose to be together as a husband and wife. So that was um, the beautiful gift Henry gave to us. You know, I think I, I really, John worked with Henry for five years at Yale and did a lot of the initial editing on the, the books that Henry wrote in that time. And so their friendship continued all through the years of Henry's life. And there was a time when Henry came to visit us and stayed in our home for several days hmm. back in the, the 1990s. So I kind of, I came into a beautiful friendship that John and Henry shared. That's really how Henry, oh, but I will say this. At the end of that year, the research fellow year, Henry really encouraged me to take a 30-day Ignatian retreat up in Canada, where he had done his 30-day Ignatian retreat. Now, lots of people don't really know that much about Ignatius of Loyola, a sort of 16th century saint in the Catholic tradition. But Ignatius taught a way of prayer that engages our active imagination in a very, very helpful way with Scripture. And I will say that 30 days is a silent retreat, 30 days. You can't go through 30 days of silence and not be changed in some pretty profound ways. Mm -hmm. It just draws you into prayer constantly, prayer and reflection and journaling. And it was all rooted in Scripture. So my way of approaching Scripture has been deeply shaped by the Ignatian path. And also, Ignatian teaches a lot about discernment, how to engage in a helpful discernment process. So uh, that's all shaped my ministry in some really important ways. And I have Henry to thank for that. Yeah, I hadn't heard of, I've heard of Ignatius. I haven't heard of just the Ignatian way and retreats and things like that. It's just so beautiful for, for someone so prolific to know him and be welcomed into his life. And I think you do a beautiful job in your book of taking some of his teachings and then putting them with yours. And then just for people who are wondering if this book could be helpful for them or for a caregiver in their life, then you have 
we we talked about uh, before we hit record, you have some appendices that I think are really practical on on some topics as well through there. Some of them, I, I read it a while ago. Do you remember some of the topics? They're like guides for churches and things super helpful, right? Yeah, yeah. There's quite a bit in the appendices because they were a really important part of why this book got published to begin with when the Henry Nowen Society first published this book with Church Health in Memphis. So there's a whole retreat for caregivers that is based on the book. Uh, It's a one-day retreat because most caregivers can't get away for more than one day, and many can't even do that. But the retreat process is there, and it can be used in other ways. There's a whole small group leader guide, which was pulled together actually by a colleague at Church Health, but I think it's, it's really beautifully done for home groups or for adult classes or small groups, uh, support groups yeah. of caregivers, perhaps, congregational care teams, ministry teams, and it could be used for workshops as well. So there's that whole kind of leader guide piece in the back. There was a workbook for participants in the retreat that was published as a separate book originally, mm-hmm. but now I think is going to be offered by IVP as a download, sort of a download that can be used as well. And some of the stories, I interviewed a number of people in different kinds of caregiving situations for the book, and I used little pieces of their stories through the four main chapters. Mm-hmm. But I tell a little bit more of those stories in uh, one of the appendixes that is called A Treasury of Stories. It gives a little more background on their lives and what they've gone through and what they've learned. And I just, boy, I tell you, those people, I have so much respect Mm -hmm. for people who have gone through these really, really challenging caregiving situations and and the way they have brought their faith into those circumstances and how God has led them and what they have learned uh, in their spiritual lives. I loved that part as well. Thank you for bringing that up. I just want people to understand, I think this is such a practical resource that I would love to get in their hands. And then one thing I really want to talk to, because I see I see the clock ticking and I want to make sure that we get there But one concept that you spoke about that I loved was the difference between care and cure. So I think for a book on caregiving, that is super important. Will you talk to us about that difference there? Sure. Yeah. You know, this is really a distinction that Henry makes in his writing. And he wrote about caregiving in a a number of different books in, in different ways over time. Even early on in his ministry, I think he understood that there's a really important distinction between cure and care. Our culture is very focused on cure. (laughs) We're a practical culture, Mm -hmm. you know, and especially as Americans, you know, we tend to be very practical, very oriented to finding solutions to problems and fixing the problems. Mm -hmm. We're we're fixers. (laughs) And I think... Oftentimes, what life teaches us is that there are problems we don't know how to fix and can't fix. Mm -hmm. The question is, how do we live with them? Hashtag COVID, right? (laughs) Hashtag COVID. 
and hashtag all kinds of other situations yes. we find yeah. ourselves in where, you know, the limits of medicine, the limits of depth psychology and our understanding of the mind and mental health issues, we're dealing with a lot of mental health issues. This is coming to the fore in our national consciousness in any way now. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, if we're going to talk about the frontiers, I think the real front, I mean, yes, we have the frontiers in space and today, even today, the new web mm -hmm. telescope is giving us pictures of, you know, the vast, vast reaches of outer space. Mm -hmm. It's just beyond comprehension. But I think the real frontier that we need most to explore is the inner frontier. It's going inward and understanding who we really are emotionally mm -hmm. and spiritually. And those two things are deeply linked. I think that sometimes we, we get so caught up in the emotions yeah. that we don't even get to the level of the spiritual life. But that's where we need to go. That That's the great invitation that I think God keeps extending to us mm -hmm. is to go to the spirit. So with respect to cure and care, Henry points out that we can always, always care, even when we cannot cure. And that, Deep caregiving goes beyond the concern to cure. If we're so focused on cure, sometimes the care really gets lost. And I think some people experience that in medical, clinical situations where, you know, the doctors are so focused on these particular symptoms yeah. that you don't really necessarily feel mm -hmm. that they care for you mm -hmm. that much. Yeah, uh, you can kind of get into a hospital sometimes and feel like you're just caught in this machinery that you know mm -hmm. you have to go from this test to that test, and you know, and then that shows you have to have this done. And it it can feel awfully impersonal at times, um, but you know it when you're a patient in a clinical setting like that. You know when a nurse or an aide. Uh, or a tech, a medical tech, or a doctor is really caring about you. Mm -hmm. And you feel a sense of connection. Um, and they really look into your eyes. And, and you know, there's maybe touch. <laughs> we need those things. We need to feel that we are cared for as human beings, the whole of who we are, not just our symptoms. Yeah. So you talking about caring makes me think about the common lingo nowadays is all about self-care, right? And I think we talk about that even with caregiving is, well, make sure you're getting your self-care in. But it's a really interesting concept, I think, as a Christian, because I was reading a book on motherhood recently, and she was talking about how it's actually soul care is what we should be saying that someone spending time with Jesus is much better than someone taking a bubble bath or those kinds of things. So I'm curious for people who devote their lives, you know, whether it's their spouse or their child or a parent or an in-law to caring for someone, how do they differentiate between caring for even themselves? And you know what? God is calling me to lay down part of myself right now in the service of others. And I know that you, I don't think we've mentioned, but you cared 
Well, we did a little bit. You cared for your mom and your mother-in-law for extensive time. So you have extensive experience in this. Yeah, that's right. Um, Well, you know, at one level, I think we're, we're talking about balancing out what are often felt like competing needs when we are really deep in the throes of, of intensive caregiving. And, and of course, you will experience this when your child comes. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, infants are so vulnerable and, and need immense amounts of care. Yeah. And so your life will not be your own <laughs> in many mm-hmm. ways. Uh, it's, it's coming. coming. <laughs> and, uh, you know, your, your sleep will be interrupted. Your energies will be fully occupied in, in many ways. And at the other end of life, um, with elder care, we often can move into some of those more intensive situations where the, the physical needs are very great, and it can become physically very demanding, as well as emotionally demanding. Mm-hmm. And the, the difference, usually, is that an infant is slowly growing year by year into a little more and a little more independence and more capacity to do things on on his or her own and you know as as the child keeps growing this is part of the beauty of watching and uh, encouraging and nurturing a child's growth is that they become their own person Uh, and you get to watch that and participate in it and you know watch them move from great dependence to more and more independence or really the healthiest understanding is interdependence because we're all interdependent on one another. None of us are fully independent ever. Right. That's kind of a myth of our culture, too. Mm-hmm. And then at the other end of life, we have gradual or sometimes more sudden loss of capacity and moving back into greater and greater dependence from times of you know enormous capacity to be an independent person, to live on your own and do things for yourself, which can be very difficult for people at the other end in in the aging process. They require different kinds of sensitivities, I think. For the caregiver, it's so important to pay attention, to pay attention to what's going on in you as you're giving care. What is happening physically in you? Where are you becoming so exhausted that it's impacting your ability to be a good caregiver? That's the important question, because if that's happening, you need to pay attention to your body and what it's crying out for so that you can get enough rest, Mm -hmm. you can get help in. Very important for us to be able to ask for help when we need it. And that's true for caregiving at any level, any time in life. It's true for us if we're care receivers. I think one of the important things about receiving care is giving ourselves permission to ask for help and to know that that's okay. It's all right. We all have times in our lives when we need help and when we become more vulnerable. To be human is to be vulnerable and then to accept that reality, not as a shame or as something to be embarrassed about, but just as part of our humanity and that it evokes the humanity in those around us to offer care. And it's a gift 
to invite others to offer their care because it's a gift to give care mm-hmm. that, that does something for us spiritually and emotionally that's important to our lives. Yeah. So it, it works both ways. It's mutual. And, and Henry is very, very clear about the mutuality of caregiving. Yeah. So Marjorie, we have so much that we didn't cover, which I mean, it's enough in a, a book so people can go pick up the book. But I think we covered what we were meant to. But I want to ask, I mean, yeah, the topic of mutuality is huge. There are a couple other huge things that I don't think that we hit on. But with just a few minutes left, what what would you want to say to someone either who is caregiving or who is receiving that we haven't really touched on yet? I guess I would just like to really underscore that human life is so full of of complexity and it's always both light and dark you know the tensions between hard experiences and hard feelings and beautiful experiences and wonderful feelings the highs and lows kind of mirror each other in our lives which is one reason why it's so important for us to pay attention to our feelings and, and to let them be what they are and to name them. Because, because if, we, if we try to contain them too much, then we really end up not being able to experience the greatest joys of life or you know, the, the greater depths of, of difficulty. The challenges and the gifts always come together. And this is the nature of human life on this earth. So uh, to, to accept that humanity that is in all of us, to accept that we will always have these tensions, um, none of us will ever be perfect <laughs> uh, in this lifetime, but we can keep opening up our experience, everything in it, the, the hardest things the brightest and beautiful things, keep opening up to God and asking God to teach us what is it we can learn from this situation in our lives? What am I learning about myself? What am I learning about the other person, my care receiver or my caregiver if I'm receiving care? What am I learning? And and what am I learning about God? Because these are the really important questions in life. God is always giving us opportunities to grow. Mm-hmm. And, and I hope we can welcome those and, and yeah. stay curious about where God is taking us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think you have led us in that today because I think in your personal life, you have pushed, leaned in, pressed into God to grow through a lot of your grief and pain. And then you have uh, leaned into sharing that experience with us in your vulnerability, which I know is not always super easy. So I just want to say thank you for doing that. And thank you for being here today and for sharing just a tiny glimpse of, of what you've been through and your wisdom. But we're really grateful for that glimpse. Well, thank you so much, Tara. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, thanks for giving me a chance to, to just um, share a bit of my journey. And uh, I do hope the the book will be helpful um, to a lot of people at different levels. And that uh, 
you know, the Holy Spirit will take it where it needs to go. <laughs> yes, he always does. <laughs> I trust that deeply. Thank you so much for your own faithfulness and this beautiful ministry that you're in all about, Tara. And, wow. and blessings on you and the little one that will be coming into your life. <laughs> I hope you found a little nugget in that episode. Thank you so much to Marjorie for her time and her wisdom and expertise in sharing with us today. If you want to support her or get her book with all those practical resources, you can check out the link in the show notes. And then if you want to head to thehealministry.com, we actually have blogs now for each podcast. So there are some more links about things that we've talked about there. We'll see you here again next Monday as we continue on with a few more episodes in season two of the Heal podcast. Have a great week, y'all.